Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Air Warrior podcast, bringing you all the news and key talking points from military aviation, from deployments and exercises to attrition and procurement. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, and in this week's episode, we explore the genesis and development of the AT-6E Wolverine Light Attack and ISO aircraft from Textron Aviation Defense, and investigate whether, amid a changing military environment, there's still a place for such platforms in a future force structure. All of that coming up a little later on in the show. The news this week. Following the contract announcement that MBDA's Sea Scepter Air Defense Missile System will be fitted to the UK's future Type 31 frigate, it can be confirmed that some components will be drawn from in-service systems currently being utilized by the Royal Navy as government-furnished equipment. In a May 26 release, European missile manufacturer MBDA stated that the Sea Scepter Close in Defense and Local Area Air Defense System will allow the Royal Navy's future Type 31 frigate to protect itself and nearby vessels from aerial attack, as well as targeting fast inshore attack craft. Key Aero can confirm that the system integrated into the UK's Type 31 frigates will be a mix of new hardware manufactured by MBDA and existing components cross-decked from the outgoing Type 23 frigates currently in service. It is not clear exactly which components will be new built and those that are going to be repurposed. However, the use of GFE in the Type 31 has been a driving factor in an attempt to reduce overall program cost. A newly released report by PricewaterhouseCoopers has stated that the UK's Tempest program intended to deliver a sixth-generation fighter fully into service from 2040, will provide a significant boost to the national economy over the next 30 years. During a May 25 webinar organized by ADS Group, PricewaterhouseCoopers officials estimated that the program would provide a £26.2 billion contribution to the UK economy between 2021 and 2050. In addition, wider combat air activities of the four UK-based companies driving the program we're expected to contribute a combined £100.1 billion to the UK economy and support 62,000 jobs per year between 2021 and 2050. The schedule to develop Tempest and get it into service remains tight, however, with senior MOD officials pointing out that this time frame would still only be around 50% of the time it took to get the Eurofighter Typhoon, the aircraft Tempest will replace, to a similar programme development level. A Nigerian Air Force-operated Beechcraft King Air 350i has crashed near Kaduna International Airport on the evening of May the 21st, killing all 11 people on board, including the newly appointed Chief of the Nigerian Army. The light VIP transport aircraft was attempting to land at the Nigerian airport in poor weather conditions at the time of the crash. The incident resulted in the deaths of all 11 people on board, including the Nigerian Army Chief Lieutenant General Ibrahim Atahiru, who had only taken up his post in January. Nigeria has operated a fleet of three King Air 350i transports since August 2014. Of the three examples delivered to the Air Arm, two have been written off in fatal crashes in recent months. The first incident occurred on the 21st of February 2021 in a crash near Abuja, killing all seven on board. And that is the news. Time now to turn to the 86E Wolverine interview, which was recorded a little earlier. Derived from the Texan T-6 trainer with the added integration of a range of precision kinetic munitions and ISR sensors, the AT-6E Wolverine was intended to present a more cost-effective solution to the jet-based close air support demands of the US military. However, has technology, an increase in contested airspace, 
and a changing global order altered the battle space enough to where platforms such as the Wolverine no longer suit? Well, to ponder this question and a whole lot more up my sleeve, it's time to welcome in freelance journalist Chris Crute, who has just written an extensive analysis piece on this very aircraft for the forthcoming August issue of Combat Aircraft Journal. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning indeed. What's the function then of the AT-6C and how long has it been in development for? So the AT-6C is a light attack and ISR platform, um, as you sort of identified in your introduction. It's been in development since the late 2000s. Just a small caveat. So while the aircraft is similar to the T-6 Texan, they are um, separate aircraft in their own right. It's a bit of a trap that I fell into myself um, while I was sort of researching and and, and speaking to Textron and, and things. They share 85% parts commonality, so they, uh, they are very similar, they're aesthetically very similar, but they are aircraft uh, in their own right. But uh, everything else that you said is, is, is perfect. It is a uh, light attack platform uh, which is uh, intended to serve air forces um, that currently operate multi-million dollar fast jets in the uh, attack role um, and ISR role, and hopefully just reduce their overhead costs. Um, it's designed to operate in an environment that's semi-contested. Uh, uh, it's obviously not going to have the maneuverability to avoid um, triple-digit SAMs and things like that. Mm. Uh, but it's not a defenseless platform. Uh, it's got a full sort of uh, chaff and flare countermeasure suite um, and integrated armor in the airframe. So it's uh, it can take a bit of a licking and uh, keep on kicking. I mean, I think I think that the 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 US received its first AT6E and. Q4 last year from, from, from Textron. What are the requirements that the US military set out for the company, for the platform? During Iraq and the Afghanistan conflicts, the US military realized that a large amount of money was, um, in essence, being wasted by using these multi-million dollar platforms to uh, take out sort of uh, soft targets. They, mm. you know, these aircraft are designed to permeate a uh, integrated air defense network and fight their way in, fight while they're there attack the target, fight their way out. That just wasn't needed in Iraq and Afghanistan. So the US military decided that they wanted uh, to investigate a platform that could provide long loiter time, could deliver kinetic strikes if needed, and deliver a ISR capability, but without the cost of a single or double-engined jet uh, aircraft. They were also really keen to find something that could monitor the ground picture um, because in those conflicts, ISR really has come to the fore, and we've seen it uh, with the with with the RAF. You know, um, our rapid procurement of Sentinel, for example, to you know to keep up uh, with the ISR picture, and, and it's something that's not been lost on on the Americans that they're using these expensive aircraft to uh, to deliver a task that could be done uh, much cheaper. So, uh, in a rough way to try and answer your question, they they wanted something that was cheap, something that was fairly light, um, and something that was pretty simple to operate but could still deliver uh, a punch uh, if required. Um, the rise of violent extremists on other continents uh, underscores that sort of need for affordability um, and for rapid deployability because it's, you know, it's quite a small aircraft and it doesn't have a large footprint when it goes somewhere. Um, they wanted something that could operate from austere landing strips and things like that. So um, the use of a, of a forward arming refueling point, a FAR, um, something that could just put down on a rough strip, a forward operating base, uh, juice up, um, rearm, and then go back out to, to either continue to monitor or to deliver strikes if required. 
Okay, do you think, though, that, that the U.S. really uh, needs such an aircraft any longer, given that it's moving away from counterinsurgency operations, um, obviously in Iraq and Afghanistan, slowly moving away, but it will do. It's looking to distribute its forces a lot more, particularly in, in the Indo-Pacific region. So is this a solution for yesterday's conflicts for the U.S. military? Maybe. Um the US is 100% gearing up for near-peer threats. Russia, the resurgent Russia and China, their influence in the Indo-Pacific region you know, can't be understated. Um, but there are always going to be small-scale flashpoints. Uh, it's just the geopolitical situation uh, of the world mm. at the moment. Have we seen the end of Afghan-style conflicts? No, sadly, probably not. Um, Mali uh, and in, the, in sub-Saharan Africa at the moment is, uh, is a great example of, of another quote, Afghan-style conflict. Yeah, good point. And dealing with um, armed insurgents who don't really possess a, a mega-credible anti-air threat. So, you know, there's not the requirement for F-35s to, to be suppressing an enemy air defense network or anything mm. like that. Um, so the Wolverine is unlikely to be a, a sort of a day one uh, platform, mm. but it's certainly going to have a place in conflicts on a smaller scale. You mentioned affordability in one of your earlier answers. Where's this platform then been exported? Because I can I can probably guess of a handful of, at least a handful, just off the top of my head, countries that would be interested in acquiring a capability such as this, say the Philippines or something like that. So has it been exported? And if so, where? Just to, just to cover it initially, the, the USAF has, uh, has ordered two platforms. The first delivered towards the end of last year, start of this year, I think around February time. Um, for um, a experiment rather than light attack it's for a sort of data integration um, experiment that the air force is, is running to try and set up a, a cheaper data link sort of thing think of like a link 16 light if you will um, but in terms of exports then um, exports have probably not been as forthcoming as maybe Textron were hoping for However, um, the State Department has signed a deal for Tunisia to make a purchase. Um, I think that their initial intention was to sign for 12 aircraft, but they've uh, signed for four at the moment. That was done in March 2020. Um, but obviously, as, as, as you'll be aware and as listeners will be aware, sort of procurement processes, they do take a little bit of time. Um, I know that Thailand um, and some South American uh, nations have also expressed an interest, but yeah, the, I think that the hope to you know export this aircraft en masse was perhaps there and is maybe not quite as there as maybe they were hoping, at, at least at the moment. Yeah, I think I, I can only assume that, well, I know it's not the only platform of that type in the, the market, but there's also you know emergence of, of technologies like launching munitions and the growing sophistication of RPAs. Do you think those kind of platforms might drive manned ground attack platforms out of the close air support role? Tricky question. Uh, but in theory, yes. Why, why not? You know, you've got, uh, as you say, you've got munitions now that can hang around over the battlefield. They can spot for a target of opportunity or you've got um, unmanned aerial vehicles that are crude, but those guys and girls are nowhere near the front line. They're safely mm. away. So yes, you know, you've got the whole, shall we put people in harm's way if we don't need to? But yeah. There are um, aircrew out there who will argue that you will never be able to replicate the situational awareness and decision-making ability of someone who's, quote, in the room, that they are there in the moment. Um, I think that 
manned CAS will be around for quite a while. Um, maybe we'll see less manned CAS at the very beginning of a conflict. God forbid we have a major uh, conflict again. Um, but I think that manned CAS is going to be around for a little bit of time to come, uh, especially with the opportunity to use lighter platforms, which have got a significantly reduced cost per hour. I've got a couple of questions uh, just, just just to close, but you've actually answered them partially, but I'll ask them again. Maybe we'll get a different, well, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll ask them maybe in a different way, might, might even get a different yeah, answer. Yeah. But I guess cost again has to be uh, one of the big factors for any military, any any developed military, because you've got platforms which are increasing exponentially in how much they cost and how much they fly. The F-35, they're trying desperately to get that down to $30,000 per flight, or I think it is, or something like that. Um, so you'd think, surely, that for a platform, if they if if they recognise the difficulties in not being able to operate these things in a contested airspace, they say, fine, this platform cannot operate in the Indo-Pacific. So that means you buy a very niche capability for a very niche conflict that may or may not happen. It seems like, well, potentially a good strategic move to make in order in in insofar as you're protecting against a potential future threat. But you still got to buy it, and then the the money you spend on these kind of platforms that's not extra money. That means you're buying less fast jets, less fourth and fifth gen fighters. So can can you actually make that high low mix that you mentioned before? Can a military, even with the limitless funds that the U.S. has got, and it's not limitless because they have to rob Peter to pay Paul all mm. the time, can they afford this high low mix that is the aspiration? That's a great question. I think, yes, I think that the USAF can uh, operate both uh, high-low mix. There's a, um, a big, big thing at the moment about kitting ourselves out for conflicts of the past. Um, mm. It was one of the big sort of uh, things I saw on social media, on, on, on the Twitter sphere, following the UK's integrated review that, oh, you know, we're equipping for a war that we've already finished fighting. Mm. Um, I do see that argument. I really do. But I also just like to counter with perhaps, okay, maybe we're equipping for a war that has closed. But as I said earlier, we're, you know, we're seeing a conflict arising in Mali. Mm. Well, are we equipping for a war that's finished or are we equipping for a war that's yet to sadly yet to happen? You know, mm. these low uh, intensity conflicts are occurring more and more often, whether they, they're proxy wars in Yemen um, or whether they're conflict um, in Nigeria with Boko Haram or, or as I say, uh, in, in Mali. So I do think that you, you hit the nail on the head with Robbie and Peter to pay Paul. There will have to be some of that, definitely. Um, but I think we're already seeing that with the, with, with the USAF, their purchase of the new F-15, for example, rather than going all out and, and, and buying thousands of F-35s. Mm. I think that they've already accepted that, okay, our, our money pot, probably not as big as we think it is. Um, mm. And we do need to, to consider other options. And I think that light attack is a good, credible option. Um, the A-10 is obviously the closest support king, but it costs thousands of dollars an hour to operate. The Wolverine's got a rough uh, eight to $900 an hour operating cost. So wow. when you think of the savings that you're going to make in the long run, um, uh, I think that the, the, it's, it's definitely something that, it's credible. The A10, you know, or even with upgrade, is showing its age. There's going to be no hiding the fact that it's going to be touching 40, 50 years old before, <laughs> before too long. Mm. But um, 
I think that that high low mix can can be can be achieved, but there will, as you perfectly say, there will have to be some robbing of pizza to pay Paul. Interesting. Thank you very much, Chris. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks again for coming on. And for our listeners, if you would like to read the article that Chris has written, check out the August issue of Combat Aircraft Journal. Chris Crew, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in the podcast, visit the Key Aero and Air International websites. But for now, until next week, thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.